Welcome everyone to season 1, episode 8 of the On Path podcast. In this season's final episode, I speak with Drashi Patel. Drashi is currently the head of marketing and brand at Celo, an Amsterdam-based secure medical messaging app. She started her career as a product marketer in Microsoft for 5 years before moving on to work at an agency and more recently lead marketing teams at technology startups. This conversation has a lot to offer. We get into topics like her journey from an individual contributor to a team lead, the move from the US to the Netherlands, and what her professional experience has taught her to be more insistent on. I wanted a wide-ranging, insightful conversation for the final episode of season 1, and this is it. As always, thank you for listening. Hi Drashti, thank you very much for joining. Hi BJ, thanks for having me. So I I want to start off with Tom's shoes. Uh now we're going to talk a lot about marketing and brand and startups and Microsoft, but I want to start off first with Tom's shoes. So pretty early in the company's history in 2008 and I believe they were founded in 2006, you you did a marketing internship there. What what made you move across the country to do that and how was the experience like? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. That was my uh junior year of college. It was the summer I did two internships. So early on in the summer I spent uh two weeks at a at an ad agency based out of Virginia called uh the Martin Agency. They cover most sort of middle America brands like Hanes, Walmart. As it's actually the reason I get to include the word underwear on my on my resume occasionally. I was on a Hanes to write up underwear account for two weeks. And it was this like consolidated um sort of agency crash course. So once I finished that, I still had 3 months of summer left and had discovered Tom's in like on a blog or something I was reading at the time and I was like that is the coolest company I've ever heard of. Uh the idea that I get to one deal with shoes but also get to market something that is all about giving something away, making the world a, a better place than it is today and uh, that was so powerful. I sent them an email, maybe maybe 10 emails and um they replied and we did an interview and they're like sure come out but the interns for our our season are already here so you'll just be a bonus so I was the the 21st intern who just like showed up after they'd already done their training and I was so thrilled to have the opportunity but I worked on all kinds of interesting things we worked out of the warehouse where they still kept many of the shoes I worked on a rap boot uh, launch specifically which was this more or less a time shoes with like a 3 foot ace bandage that you wrapped up your leg like you would a polo horse and it was Uh, a really fun summer. I learned all kinds of things but also just learning how to how to live with 15 people in a two and a half bedroom apartment. So how many people were at Tom Shoes at the time? I I I would say it was close to half and half. It felt like there was about half uh sort of full-time staff and half interns. So the interns sat sat at a long table down the middle of the fake shoebox office walls and sort of a really cool handmade table and we just lined up every morning. So, now I want to talk about what you work on currently. You're the head of brand and marketing at Celo. You're the head of a function, you have a team, and I know your previous company is very much focused on employee engagement. So, I'm really interested in hearing uh your experience as a manager and especially that transition from being an individual contributor to a manager. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely been a really big year for being in health tech, I think, especially and with covid kind of coming in into our into all of our lives early in the year it was definitely a an adjustment as far as it, like different audience different behaviors if you think about dealing with healthcare professionals versus uh, hr buyers they operate with with sort of different evaluation processes and they look for different types of content their decision making process looks wildly different and uh, i think adjusting to that in a place where i was then locked down in my house but having to then navigate different conversations and dealing with a team that I had only gotten to know just for a few months and establishing processes as we worked out sort of offline and via video was definitely a really interesting adjustment and uh, we cre- came up with all kinds of processes that we sort of treated in the same way we do most of our projects which is everything is an experiment and so nothing is ever set in stone we tried a notion board we call that our backpack doc where it's got all of our projects for the week, it's got our names on it, we've got a space for unplanned work. We kind of navigated that way. We tried that for a couple of weeks and then made adjustments. I'm a big fan of retrospectives. We did a little recap on how that was going, anything that was missing, but I think it's kind of it was the perfect storm of too many new things at once, but I think the best way to take it is is just sort of one experiment at a time. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. So it was it was a new company. It was a well, just new reality, new way of working, a new industry. So a lot of a lot of changes at the same time. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, great. And so one question I always like to ask is, how would you explain your role to to family and friends, those people who are outside of marketing, outside of tech? Yeah, I think that's got to be one of the hardest questions. I think if you ask any marketer, your day to day can depend so so widely. Uh, I find one of the easiest explanations is that I help the right people find, buy, and love what we sell. And I think if I were to use the easiest sort of most comprehensive words, that's probably what I can think of best is, is that, yeah. And then that breaks down all kinds of things, whether it's working on brand strategy at the top end, making sure they can find us in the right way, working on press, or is it around uh, product and feature adoption on the far end? Uh, do they love it? Do they want to tell their friends about it? And then everything in the middle, do you have all the right things to make the decision to choose our product or, or service over any other product or service? Yeah. Um, and I want to talk now about two specific areas within marketing, which I know are very close to your heart. Um, so first, starting off with product marketing. What is product marketing and how is it different from marketing in general? Yeah, I think that's the hardest question. <laughs> product marketing to me is a little bit of everything except for building the product. So depending on the day, I will do a competitive analysis or you do a market analysis, you do buyer personas, you'll figure out where your customer journeys are breaking, messaging frameworks. It's really about understanding what you have to offer and finding the best way to land it in market to the people that, that could benefit from it most. So really understanding what your value propositions are, um, who your buyer personas are and how you can kind of connect your product to people. Yeah. Product marketing is is really everything. I love, my favorite part about it is that I can, uh, in any given day, I'll have a meeting with a product team or a sales team or a support team. And neatly, I would call that all my job. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's really a very cross-functional role. I mean, it, you have to be strong on the data side, but you also have to be able to interview customers and users, uh, work really well with basically most of the internal teams. Yeah, definitely. So you've done product marketing both at very large companies, at Microsoft uh, with Office 365, but also at startups. And I imagine at large companies, it's at a much more granular level. Could you talk a little bit about the, the, the difference in that experience? Yeah, I think when I started off at Microsoft, that was my first job out of college. And I started as a product marketer. They take that function very seriously at Microsoft. So uh, there's a proper training program in place. And you learn good structure, good bones. And I think I still use many, many of those processes and templates today. Everything from messaging frameworks to launch plans. I use the term bomb, build of materials a lot. And my, my team um, at most of my startups are like, what are you talking about? But I, it's, these are sort of skills I picked up at Microsoft, which is how do you do the thing well and, and so well that you can communicate it to a bunch of different stakeholders across not only your product, but maybe across across different products or up and down sort of varying levels of leadership. How do you do your thing so well and so clear that it is understood across all levels? Yeah. Um, and I think that's something I really um, sort of cherish about what I what I learned at Microsoft is sort of the structure and the clarity of, of communication. I think what's really different on the startup side is every day is different and everything is broken because chances are a lot of it hasn't been done before. And I think that the trickiest part of the role is, is prioritization. Where do you start? Where do you throw the first bucket of water on a burning house? Yeah. And so if you were to talk to somebody who's considering entering product marketing or is in product marketing, what would you suggest to them as the top three frameworks to keep in mind? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say my go-to are definitely a messaging framework. If you can get yourself aligned on what your product does who it's for and how it helps them, then you can hand that off to any other team and you'll know that the rest of the customer journey follows, follows suit, that we're not over-promising on features that we may or may not actually be able to deliver if we set the right tone at the beginning. Um, no matter what touch point it goes to or who takes that touch point across the company, you know you have some level of consistency. Uh, so I'm a big fan of a good messaging framework. The other one I would say is probably... Uh, a product launch framework. And I, I break mine out into two parts, sort of a quick feature launch versus a more sort of meaty product launch. So whether you're, it's a new 
product area or whatever it might be. And the two, I think, follow the same sort of process. Just one list is shorter than the other to cross off. And everything from what teams do you need involved? What's going to be the goal? What are the metrics you're tracking? But also, what channels do you want to use to communicate um, to the people that you need to? Uh, will you need multiple touch points to land that point? Do you need to do stuff in products or just through marketing channels? Um, it's really just a comprehensive list of all of the channels you have available to you and all the ways you can land um, that new functionality with uh, with the user you, you, you want to reach. And then I love a good buyer persona. It's good to know who you're talking to because the second you know, you know exactly how to meet them with your words. So if you're getting closer to sort of a negotiation phase, you want to know that there's a little bit of apprehension in regards to like price and maybe making the right choice. And if you can meet that emotion where they are, you can often have a more fruitful conversation. So I love the idea of having really strong buyer personas because it allows you to just have more effective conversations at the right moment. Yeah, great. And and so now I'd like to talk a little bit about brand. What is your process for nailing down brand? It's such a fluid, creative concept, but requires defining clear, do this, not that boundaries to ensure strong differentiation. Yeah, a brand brand is a tricky beast. I think every time I've, I've done it, it follows a different journey and it's never quite the same. We're actually going through uh, brand refinement right now at Silo, which is, so it's, it's actually very top of mind currently, but I read a really great article a couple of years ago from Asana about their rebrand and their journey, and they documented it in a really lovely way. And I found that their core sort of framework was actually something that really spoke to me. And it put, it put sort of bones to an idea that, um, that I guess I'd kind of intuitively found myself upon. And what I love about it is that a good brand starts at its core. So its mission, its vision, values, and its narrative. And if you can get that right, then you can start to think about your elements. So how do you take that core and how does it translate into your photography um, decisions? How does it translate to your typography, um, even, even shapes and colors? And uh, when you know exactly who you are, it's easy to make those decisions. And I certainly uh, feel strongly that if you're going to go from your core out to your, to your elements, that you should be able to explain each one of your elements. So this is an exercise we're going through. Um, we actually just went through it last week where um, we were talking about our photography style and uh, our hero, obviously, are healthcare professionals. We make the technology, but every day they they discuss patient cases and treat patients through our application. And it is, it is them who make the product valuable. And something we discussed was when we, when we talk about photography, it, we want to make sure that there's hands in context of our, of, our, of our mobile app because they're sort of the power behind our app. If we talk about product screenshots, we want to make sure that there's an image and a name, a real photo, not, a, not initials. Uh, it's sort of making sure that all of your decisions have, have a rationale. And I think that that is really the most important thing because if you can, if you can rationalize your decisions, then everybody in the company can, can also memorize the rationale. If everything has a little bit of a story to it, then it becomes easier for other people to know what the rules are and to then stick to them. Um, so exactly like that, if you think about having someone pull um, stock images versus then thinking about something with, um, with hands and um, a device, then it's a decision-making decision framework that they can implement internally. Yeah, I think the framework aspect of it is so important. Otherwise, it's it can be really fluffy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and uh, and also about working from the core and then outward. So really have that foundation, have everybody's buying, and then then you can make the next level of decisions based on that. Yeah, I think definitely. I, I like to break that out into like multiple sort of lunch and learn lessons because a good brand is when everyone does the same thing. It's it, at the end of the day, brand comes down to consistency. So. How do you bring your entire organization on that journey with you? That way, when you reach the end and you're like, here's the new logo and the colors and the shapes and the photography style and the and the typography that we've chosen to use, um, none of that is a surprise. That story has been slowly building uh, over time through each sort of lunch and learn session that you that you do. Mm, yeah. And it, in branding, one topic in particular that I'm interested in is brand as it relates to B2B brands. Um, are there any that come to mind that are doing a really great job? Yeah, I always have like my go-to that I always Google first if I need a little inspiration. I I actually do really enjoy Asana. I love that they their brand tells a story and that they that they very clearly take the time to tell that story about their journey and how they've gotten to where they are. Um, what other brand? I also really like Drift. I think it's because they speak to product marketers. They're already speaking my language, but I also really enjoy the way that they approach brand and the clarity with which they explain their brand. Um, 
what are other ones that I can think of? I, I'd say those are two that I always like to quickly just Google if, I, if I'm in search of inspiration for a landing page or how do they treat their photography or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. In, uh, with, the, with the case of Drift in particular, it's, uh, you can see how it's such a powerful way to differentiate uh, just in their tone, in their imagery. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, uh, so at this point now, I'd like to rewind all the way back and then kind of work our way forward, if that sounds good. Yeah, let's do it. So my first question for you is, how did where you grew up shape you into the person you are today? Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, which usually is at the, the butt end of most middle of nowhere jokes. And as a kid, I, I loved to read. And it was something my parents definitely encouraged me to do. And I read, I, I feel like, almost every children's book in the library. And I think it shapes my love for brand and storytelling, which I think also car carries over then into marketing. But I love a good story. Every good story has a hero, has a problem, has a solution that solves that problem. And I, I, I like to think that that's sort of the core storytelling sort of muscle that I, I've, I've built um, since childhood. And I love that I get to use that every day and I, I get to create my own stories, whether they're about product features or value that we're delivering or interesting case studies. It always manifests in an interesting way. Yeah. Can, can you think back to any book that you read during your childhood in particular that really struck you? Yeah, that's, uh, my team would probably laugh at this question right now because I've been referencing um, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. I don't know if you if you read the, the book as well, but essentially it's about a mouse. And if you give him a cookie, he's going to ask you for a glass of milk. And if you give him a glass of milk, he's going to ask you for a straw. And the story goes on. And I often find myself referencing books that I read as a child to like to land examples uh, when I'm communicating something to my team, which is if we're if we're going to give a customer this, then they're going to want that. And if they're going to want that, then we're going to have to have the third thing prepared, which is really how I like to think about customer journeys, which is if we give them the first thing, then we need to be ready to give them the second thing and the third third thing. So mm -hmm. um, how, do you, how do we think about building a, a sort of a comprehensive campaign in that regard? Yeah. Uh, so you grew up in Arizona, you went to school in Michigan, you lived in Seattle, in San Francisco, and now you're in Amsterdam. And I'm really interested in hearing about this transition from the U.S. to the Netherlands specifically. You have multiple data points in each country, right? You work with many organizations in the U.S. and multiple companies in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, definitely. I think I had a, a soft landing when we arrived in the Netherlands. I worked for a company that operated heavily in English, entirely in English. And that was really great um, because I could just kind of get really familiar with everything else that felt new. So a new workplace, um, sort of work-life balance as Amsterdam is wildly different than San Francisco tends to be, especially if you think about startups. Uh, but what was really nice is the work I was doing uh, was still very much in my wheelhouse, but it was sort of the context in, with I, in which I was doing it that was sort of different. But I think the, the really big change I'm seeing is happening now at Silo, where we operate heavily in Dutch and German and English. And now we're doing this sort of multilingual outreach. Uh, we recently did our funding announcement and we covered that in six countries, three languages, all kinds of like trade and general press, getting to know different publications and what which ones matter and where. Uh, I think it, that is a whole different world. And it's kind of a fun way to exercise a muscle that I've never had to before. Uh, but it adds an, a level of, of 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 challenge, I think, to marketing, and I I really find that really exciting. It's a new building a new skill. I think is really what I find pretty motivating, and I really enjoy that about working here. Is it comes with its own new set of challenges. And the Netherlands, in particular, is very well known for work-life balance. Uh, they rank at the top, I think, in many of those lists. Uh, how how has that experience been for you? That was definitely a big adjustment. I think my first couple of weeks at Impraise, I would go into my San Francisco routine because I, I really only, only had a week between stopping work in, in San Francisco and starting a new job uh, here. And I would do my Sunday routine, which is get all my stuff in order. I'd work for quite a few hours and get my get my week ready plan out, plan out my projects, maybe do some of my quiet thinking time uh, work that I wanted to do, whether it's deep, deep diving into something that just requires um, 
a few hours to really buckle down. Um, and I got a, a Slack message from our CEO and he's like, you're not supposed to be online right now. And it was the first one. I was like, oh yeah, I guess I don't need to be online. This work will be there tomorrow and I can do it then. And, or I can plan the quiet time into my work day. And uh, that was a way, I think that was the first moment where I felt like, oh, I'm going to have to rethink how I, how I prepare myself. Wow. Okay, great. So you mentioned that uh, Microsoft was your first job out of school. How did you land that position in Microsoft? Yeah, it was a, a funny story. It was 2009. There weren't uh, very many recruiters coming to campus in general. I ended up learning about a, an engineering recruiter from Microsoft at Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, which was a, a popular, popular institution in Ann Arbor. Uh, so I just stopped by, had my resume on hand, and I was like, hey, I have my resume. I've worked at a variety of different marketing internships kind of across industries. I major league soccer and shoes, and uh, here it is. Should you happen to find yourself with an open position, please let me know. And uh, they got back to me the next day, ended up uh, doing an interview, and um, flew out a couple, I think it was like a month and a half later, and interviewed with the primarily with the office division. So it was nine interviews. I had done my homework. I read, um, I don't know if you've ever read it, but there's this really great book uh, about interviews at Microsoft, which is called Moving Mount Fuji. And it's about like the the interview question style that they um, mm. that they sort of invented maybe at, at Microsoft. And it's questions like, why are manhole, manhole covers round? If you had to move Mount Fuji, how would you move Mount Fuji? Uh, but the question I got asked was, um, how many gas stations are there in the United States? And really, they just want to hear you talk, hear, hear your thought process as you try and navigate a question like that. And I remember that being a, a really fun, I was like, uh, it was my lunchtime interview. So trying to like eat a salad and answer this, like run math in my, in my head about how many gas stations there could possibly be in the United States. But Oh, um, wow. So that was a question while you were actually eating lunch? <laughs> yeah, I, I'll never forget it. I think it was like trying to do mental math and make sure I don't like spill food on my suit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it was, yeah, it was yeah. like you flew out there and it was a full day. Was it like seven, eight interviews all back to back? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was a, a long day. I think what, what I really appreciated was I definitely, I, inter I interviewed with the SharePoint team, which is actually where I took my, took my role. And I'm pretty sure I called it point share all day long. Like no one bothered to correct me, but we proceeded with the questions nonetheless. And what I really appreciate is that they they dove into how I would think think about problems, um, how I would solve solve things that no one really had the time to even think about. If I could be trusted with a thing, and and also then its subsequent solution, and I found that to be really sort of empowering. And that was exactly what I got into day one. They're like this girl who calls our product point share. She's maybe responsible for end user adoption, and that was my first big project at Microsoft was end user adoption and. If she, it, I think the theory was if she can figure it out, she can teach other people what it is and why it's valuable and how to use it. And um, I also think that that's a philosophy I, I like to bring into hiring, which is if you're curious enough, if, you're, if you problem solve and quickly and have your set of go-to tools and resources, you can really navigate any problem, any challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that open-minded philosophy to hiring. I think especially in today's world, having X years of experience in a particular tool isn't that useful because... Well, first of all, that, that tool is evolving so fast and then the market itself is evolving so fast. So it's really just about the quality of your thinking and how you approach problems. Yeah. How fast can you learn? Yeah. So you mentioned you went through a boot camp at Microsoft. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. When I uh, first started as a new hire, um, it was a sort of a fresh out of, fresh out of college, uh, new hires program. It came with a two-year two training program that was, uh, I think, primarily coordinated uh, in conjunction with uh, the Kellogg School of Management. And it was a really thorough program that was really designed to help teach the foundations and the templates and the basics of, of product marketing. And so whether it was about packaging or pricing or messaging and positioning, we covered a little bit of that um, kind of over, over the course of that program. And they did a really good job of trying to make sure that it always connected back to your job. So you had these exercises and projects that you had to coordinate then with your manager. So if we're practicing a certain skill, um, you would coordinate how that was a something you could do in an in an applicable and beneficial way for your team. And I, th I think it was one of the most, um, I think, influential moments of my career, which was learning good foundations because everything I've built on top of that comes from that strong core. The other thing that was really great about that program is we didn't do it alone. So I uh, did it alongside 
quite a few different colleagues from different businesses, all kind of in the same boat, new hires, uh, fresh out of undergrad. And we are still friends to this day. It's nice to have friends that who's, who speak a similar language to you, no matter what business you're in, because those I, those conversations are invaluable. I think when you can talk about the skills and uh, the exercises and the motions of the work, but be able to apply it in a variety of different contexts, but still be able to follow along. I think it's a pretty powerful thing. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like such a great, such a great benefit, especially when you're just starting off. Definitely. Yeah, I would highly recommend a boot camp like that to anyone. I, I know that there's a ton of great product marketing boot camps out there um, today, but nothing like getting to do it while getting paid to do it. <laughs> and, and logistically, how did that work? Did you fly to Chicago for a bit or you it was all in Seattle? Uh, it was primarily done, yeah, uh, in Seattle with our with our teams. And then we, we did a, I think it was maybe a week or two um, in Chicago on site. It, it was December and it was very cold, but uh, a really great, a really great experience. Um, but yeah, most of it was done. We did our calls and our check-ins with our, our small groups and stuff, primarily in our in our day-to-day environment. And uh, I, I think it's something that I, I couldn't be more thankful for. I still, um, being in touch with many, many of my friends from the program, we, we all are all now in varying places and it's really cool to get to share resources and um, in our experiences, uh, still with each other. And I feel like it's a program that I feel like will never end because I have this lifelong sort of connection. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so a decade later, how do you all keep in touch? Is it, is it like a WhatsApp group with LinkedIn or? Yeah, we did a, we did a zoom call and thankfully we've gone through a fair number of weddings and, and that sort of thing, but yeah, it's primarily our WhatsApp group and it's, um, it's pretty active. And So it was product marketers who were working on SharePoint and office. Uh, product marketers across Microsoft, so varying products. Yeah. yeah, cool. So you were there five years total, and what what are some of your key takeaways from that experience? Yeah, I think it's it's a I think the longest I've been anywhere, but it was I think the best place to start. So I'd say one of my big one of my big things is having templates. It's an easy way to just hit the ground running on a problem because you already know. There's already structure to put put your ideas into, so whether it's messaging frameworks or whatever it is, uh, it's nice to have a place to start, a place to put your ideas. Um, the other thing that I really loved about my time at Microsoft is I was assigned a mentor really early on, and um, she and I are still in contact today. And it was really nice to have someone in your corner, no matter what was what project was thrown your way or how your role transitioned, because I went from end user adoption to partner strategy for Office 365 and Two very bus- two very different sort of business motions, and it was always nice to have someone in my corner, someone who could connect me to then other people, help me think through some of my challenges, and um, and just kind of always show up no matter what I was doing. She was she was my like, my biggest advocate, and it was really great to have someone like that, someone who's a constant through your career at Microsoft. So after Microsoft, you went to an agency, and now more recently at, at various startups and. So, so what what drew you to to this different experience? I think it's something most people experience with large companies when you work in a place that's that big. Brand consistency takes on a whole nother meaning. So, if you are going to do literally anything, it will have to go through a legal review and a brand review. And if it's going to be external facing, then it's got to go sort of through these hoops. And unfortunately, in my experience, by the time it made it back to me, it no longer looked like the thing I had made in the first place. And as someone who who really enjoys creative solutions to problems, I found that to be a little bit disheartening. And I thought that's really what I enjoyed in my brief time on the agency side as an intern. I liked the free sort of free spirited, un, unbounded creativity, the ability to all ideas are good ideas. And then you can filter out the ones you want to put in front of your clients. And I thought that was a world that I really wanted to dive into. And specifically on the brand strategy side, I think I was starting to recognize is that an area of topic for me was something I definitely found interesting. It was stuff I, I would read about regularly. And I just thought the nuances of brand and how people engage with brands was really interesting. And I ended up with an agency job in San Francisco. So moved myself out there uh, to be a brand strategist. And it was, I think I, I quickly learned that I enjoy being the client because the second you put three options in front of a client, they never want the good ones. They're the ones that you think are good or the ones that you think are most creative or going to push the, push the envelope. They want the ones that are a bit more conservative, the ones that aren't as, as fun to work on. And I, I like to be the one who then ends up calling the shots. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so that was at an agency. And then after that, um, and, th and then you moved to early stage startups, right? If I, if, if I'm not mistaken, most of the startups you've been a part of have been kind of series A, so still quite, quite early stage. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think ClearSide was the biggest of my startups. So it was kind of, uh, getting back in, getting, getting back into tech in sort of a more comfortable way. So it was 250 people. Um, yeah. things are moving really fast, but I remember my first couple of, of months being like, oh, I don't need to send that to the legal team to sign off on any of this. And they're like, yep, just go. You can put it out live. And I was like, are you sure that's going to go on the website? <laughs> Am I allowed to do that? And I loved that sort of, I'm glad I had sort of that acclimation period of, because I think each subsequent startup I've worked at has gotten smaller and more nimble. And it's nice to, to really feel like that's a, you, you just feel you're in control of the work you do. And it's a pretty powerful thing. And I think it's the thing I really enjoy about startups is every day what I do goes out into the world and it, for, for whatever it's worth it, 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 it's seen by somebody else almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious since you mentioned it a couple of times at Microsoft, like let's say you want to do a copy update or some other update, how, just to get a kind of sense of how many steps would that have to go through or about how much time would that take? Yeah, it may, maybe it's a function of uh, that being my sort of my first role, but I would often prepare a thing. It would run through my manager if it needed to, then go through um, sort of our our team team lead, and then depending on on what the implications of it were, what the the budget component of it was, it would go further up or further down. So, for example, with my end user campaign. I had prepared, it was sort of an over-the-top learning SharePoint is not the easiest thing in the world, and I wanted it to be fun. So we came up with really cool examples. We created these cards, and each one had something fun on it. So uh, the, the whole promise was we'll help you save time with SharePoint. And on it, we had put recipes that we had licensed, and it was like, I think it said something like, admit it, you've already thought about what you're going to have for dinner. Why not try? And it was the idea that you'd save all, saved all this time that you could put together a really great meal. And we had cute little animation. Uh, uh, illustrations on it and by the time it made it through the legal review the adorable little like die cut of the of the dog we had to remove and we ended up with like literally a recipe printed down the side on like a very plain on-brand colored document and it was I think for me I felt like we'd stripped away the fun and in the in its process of going up and then coming back down uh, I felt like I lost really the sort of the the magic and sparkle that I'd, I'd brought to the to the table mm. yeah yeah, I think what's great about your experience is that you definitely think about the legal implications. Yeah. But you don't necessarily have to go through all the all those steps. So. Yeah, I think I'm doing a quick checklist of uh, will we get in trouble if <laughs> we do this, um, and with how many people would we get into trouble? Is this? I think it's much easier to evaluate sort of the risk versus the reward. I think, and it's probably something I maybe I didn't quite have the muscle to do at, at Microsoft, and I, I wonder if that's why a process like that exists in the first place. But. I think what's nice about it is having gone through it so many times, it's it's almost a skill I've I've acquired. So I can almost gut check most most projects that I put out into the world is is that is that gonna be okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um I, I want to touch upon a, another topic. So I know you present at conferences on marketing and brand. Of course, now we live in a very different world. So are you planning to continue to do that virtually? And if so, I'd be curious to hear. What do you think is better about the virtual experience and, and what do you think is worse? I, I would love to keep speaking at events. I think I always get, it's it's not always the most comfortable thing, I, but it's probably not for anyone, right? Public speaking in front of a bunch of people who are your peers and really understand the stuff that you're presenting. Uh, but my approach to it has always been to talk about something that I think will help someone solve their own challenges when they make it back to their own desk. So that's kind of always been my approach, like having worksheets or having tangible exercises or questions that they can take back and and really think through in their own context. So not just sharing sort of my my journey, but also having a leave behind um, is something that's pretty important to me. I think what's nice about a, a virtual conversation is that you can share links. I think that's that's such a cool thing. It feels small, but it's like I can quickly pop over. Oh yeah, this was the this was the article I meant, or this was the. Th I had read this thing earlier or send me the thing you were, you were talking about. I think it feels a, a, maybe a bit more interactive in that regard. Something else I've kind of observed about just being behind the screen is everyone's kind of the same. Like we're all, we're all sitting at a desk. Like there's not someone on a podium 
kind of waving their hands and saying what they say. I think it feels more like a an inclusive conversation and everyone I think has something to teach. And I think a platform that yeah. maybe more more virtual, I think sets us up for something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think about the accessibility also just because you know, as a participant, you could be in multiple conferences in a day. As a speaker, you could be in multiple conferences in a day. Like, it just takes out all that friction of having to travel, all the setup time and all that. Yeah. And hopefully even some of the nerves, too. Now you're not standing in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> it's just your Zoom screen. Yeah. Uh, but then challenges the engagement. It's very easy for people to get distracted with notifications or whatever else they might have going on. Yeah. I mean, that's that's true, even at an in-person event. You still have their phones and all that, but yeah. But you, at um, least you feel a little bit more ashamed if you're going to pull out your phone in the middle of a talk. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. So at this point, I'd like to look back a bit. My first question is, who are one or two very influential people in your life? Yeah, I'd say someone I can think of pretty easily is my mentor from Microsoft, Barbie, we met my first week at Microsoft, we went for lunch and she, as a woman in tech and who has been doing that for, for some time and having navigated that environment, it was really powerful to have someone to talk to about about her experience and what her journey has looked like and what um, what her experience has been so that I could learn from what she had learned and set myself up for success in the best way possible. She and I would meet regularly about all kinds of things and I, I love that she cared about my projects as a part of my adoption campaign for SharePoint, we ended up recording sort of office style videos on what can go wrong if you don't use it. If you didn't use SharePoint, what could go wrong? And she showed up at my booth at, at like 6 a.m. on a Saturday. And it was nice to just always feel like I had someone who was, who was my cheerleader for whatever, whatever project I was taking on, no matter how big, how scary, or how, how creative or bold my solution was going to be, someone who was just going to always... Um, always support that. And, and and what was amazing is she, she carried that over, not just into, into my work, but into anything I took on. Uh, it was volunteering at an organization called the Ruby Room, and they collected prom dresses for low-income high school students so that they could create a, a shopping experience um, that they could, low-income students could choose a dress and, and take it home at no cost. And as a way to raise their funds, they would do this big um, runway show where they would take the ugliest dresses that had been donated that year and designers from all over the city would cut them up into really cool new outfits and they would auction off the dresses. And, oh, wow. um, I thought that would be a really fun thing to participate in. So I made a dress out of coffee filters. Maybe I'd watched too much Project Runway at the time, but um, maybe this crazy dress with coffee filter flowers. And she ended up buying my dress because it it barely looked like it would work as a as a, as a article of clothing. <laughs> um, and I, I love that she's always she's always been like a champion of my, of my endeavors. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And is that a mentorship that continues to today? Yeah, definitely. How, how would you suggest to someone who's looking for a mentor to go about it? Yeah, I think finding someone who, who wants to be a mentor, I think, uh, I think that's an important thing to look for. Someone you get along with, uh, you spend a lot of time talking about sure the work or whatever it might be, but also a lot more time talking about everything else and, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, uh, having a good back and forth. What do you think works well as far as a, a cadence to keep in, in touch? Yeah, we, we don't quite chat as often as I would like now, but when I first started out, it I think it was a as an official part of my onboarding, we met, we met monthly, I think it was, and that was a really great, always on the calendar, a milestone to check in. But I think yeah. starting there and then kind of adapting to what you need, I think maybe where I'm at now, I would I would really enjoy having someone to kick around ideas with maybe once a quarter, someone who equally geeks out over the same things I do. And yeah, just someone to, to have a, to get you out of your own day to day and into something maybe a little bit more abstract and someone, someone else's challenges for, for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. You're so close to what you're working on to your personal set of challenges that it's, it's great to have that outside perspective. Yeah. And kind of zoom out a little bit. Yeah. Here's a question I came up with to try and better unpack how people's perspective and attitudes have changed as your career has evolved. What's something in your professional life you used to insist on that you're a lot more flexible about now? Yeah, I think early on in my career, I was pretty happy to take whatever salary or compensation or whatever it might be as it was presented to me. I think when you start off in a career in tech, 
uh, maybe especially as a female, you're kind of just happy to have the opportunity to to be given the chance to try something new. And I think I think with each new year under my belt, I think I become more of an advocate for myself and what I'm worth and what I what I feel I should be compensated for and what I what I've earned both from my experience and my performance and and even the scope of of work I do because I often tend to sneak in sneaky projects into the radar because I just can't watch things break. So knowing what I'm doing, knowing what I'm worth, I think is something that I've built over time. And it's, it's something that I feel like it's something I work to maintain. It's definitely, it's not something that comes easy, but I think really being aware of, of what makes you feel valued and appreciated in your work environment means that you have more time and energy to spend on actually doing the work rather than, than being caught up in the negative negativity that comes with not feeling respected or appreciated or valued. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great point. We are the custodians of our own career and that that's true with compensation and also with taking up internal opportunities that arise within the company or, uh, you know, new responsibility. Definitely. And so the, the flip side of what you just answered, what's something you were not particular about before that you now absolutely insist on? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I can't help but think to early on in my career when I started at Microsoft, uh, one of the first projects I was assigned to was to map every feature of SharePoint 2007 to the the new version we were getting ready to release, which was 2009. And it ended up being this massive Excel sheet where I'd clicked on every button, tried every functionality, explored every pathway, looked at every sort of confirmation screen. I got to experience the product at its fullest. And it allowed me to really understand my role as a product marketer. And it was, if I didn't know this product inside and out, backwards and forwards, then I couldn't market it, then I couldn't communicate it to, to other end users or whatever my role would happen to shape up as. And this is something I strongly insist all new hires on my team do as well, which is the second you join the team or the company, you download the product or you open up the software and you click every button, you ex explore every every click through the eyes of our ideal sort of client profile and you really start to know it and its values and its benefits in in sort of an intimate way because that's what allows us to be great product product marketers and marketers in general yeah yeah that that's a great ask i think of uh, people in many different teams marketing and of course product and sales and customer success it's such a great way to really make sure that everyone knows the product inside out. Definitely. I've seen some companies do that on the support side as well, really to get to know customers. Like everybody has a period of time where they, they work support. Yeah, that was something we actually did when I was at ClearSide. We, um, everyone had to do sort of a monthly, once a month you had to get on the support lines and you had to answer the questions. And obviously the team would sit there and coach you through anything that got dicey, but it was such a great way of, of maintaining that touch point to, to the end user, to the people that have to use it in and out uh, every day. Yeah. So a, a decade ago, you were, had moved from Michigan to Seattle. You were working at Microsoft. How is life different than maybe what you envisioned and where you envisioned you would be 10 years on from then? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm actually not sure I would have... I. I would have started off my journey with the intention of loving tech as much as I did. Um, I didn't know what a server looked like my first day at Microsoft. I got walked into the room and they're like, this is a server. And I was like, oh, this big black, black box, that's a server. Cool. Um, I think it was it was something I, I fell into and I love, I love changing industries for exactly that reason. I love learning new things. And I think tech to me was so interesting compared to all, any of the internships I had done. Every... Every few months, every few weeks, there was a new, a new element, new, new piece of value we could take to our users and to our, um, to our clients. And it makes the work so much more dynamic and interesting. If you add a new piece of value to something, you've now changed its narrative. And how is that evolving and changing? And now that you've added this new component, can you now open up a different market segment? And now are you talking to different types of people? And I think I didn't realize how much I would love tech for that exact reason, which is the work never looks the same, no matter no no matter where you end up doing it, how big the company. It's always evolving and it's always changing in new and interesting ways. If I told you you would be living in Amsterdam, would you have believed that? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. It's a. Uh, it, it seems like a hard thing to do. I think growing up uh, in the states, it's it's kind of the place everyone wants to come to, and I think 
that's, I guess that's kind of instilled growing up. Like this is, especially when you end up in a place like San Francisco, where there's a world of opportunity already. Um, you could stay there and explore all kinds of new things and never get bored. Um, but I, I'm so thankful to have ha had the opportunity to try something new because I feel like I'm learning my craft in a different way. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so now I'd like to move on to the topic of interests and preferences. And one question I like to ask, it's what's something you've become interested in recently that uh, that you're actively learning? Yeah, I would say I'm, my husband makes fun of me for this exact thing, but my, he, he jokes that my hobby is collecting hobbies. So any given month, I've picked up a new thing that I want to try. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did a fabric sculpting class where we melted fabric. So it was just like a cool way to think about something and how it morphs into something else and uh, with with heat or clay or whatever it is. Um, but also I, I've been learning embroidery or like gold leafing. I try my hand at a little bit of graphic design. I think it's really just the element of learning something new. I, it feels more important to me now being locked in our house more often um, than we than we care to be locked in our house. I, I like the idea of having that mental escape to to try something new. It's almost like in a storybook, when you read about a new, a new magical land, it's exploring like a new skill set and trying new things and making new things and building new things. I find mo most of my hobbies involve tactically making something, like gluing something together or whatever it might be. Then I also have some digital en endeavors. I'm working on a children's book. Um, it's about a hamster who lives in Amsterdam and he loses his glasses and he has to smell his way home. So um, it's kind of fun. At any point, I like to have qu quite a few. Um, quite a few things going and um, I think it gives me the energy I need to do my job, but also inspires sort of like points of connection back to my work. Um, I love the title of the children's book. <laughs> Thanks. I bought the domain name, my own hamsterdam.fun. So stay tuned. And are you working on the illustrations, the text, both? Yeah, I, I don't think I'm qualified to do the illustrations, but I'm doing the writing in rhyme, which is which is really fun. I, I have a niece and nephew, and um, they're they're my uh, they're my user testers. Um, they they tell me it's wrong, the rhyme doesn't work. Um, they have lots of opinions, and they're not shy about sharing them. Yeah, also cool that you mentioned the these hobbies that are non digital and more more physical. I think that's such a good contrast when you're on your screen and really kind of living in the virtual world the whole time. Yeah, definitely. I think my definition of creativity at work has changed uh, over over the last 10 years. I think creativity at work meant coming up with really cool solutions to, to problems. But I think the way I express creativity at work now is about creating structure for my team to do really good work. And it's about putting in frameworks and stuff so that they can, they can expend the level of creativity that I was early on in my career. But I find that because I'm spending a lot of my time creating structure that I also still seek a little bit of that freeform creativity. And I find that in sort of offline formats. Yeah. What would a perfect day look like to you? Ooh, I think it would start, start with a good tea. I like tea. I'm a tea drinker. I'd have enough time to set up my, my setup. I actually really enjoy working from home. So I think that that's a part of my perfect day. But maybe I get up with more than five minutes to spare before my first meeting and have enough time to set up my station. And then I, I like to, I, whatever my meeting day looks like, I'm happy to like take calls with the team. If they're blocked, um, I want to be the, the first person they call to be to help them be unblocked. I'd like to spend the majority of my day sort of unblocking everyone else's projects and then leaving an hour or two to work on my own projects, which are requires sort of that headspace. So currently it's working on um, shaping up the brand narrative to pair with the uh, the visual identity um, exploration we've been doing. And that to me is not something I could do between meetings because it requires just, you kind of have to go through this like mental exploration, like you pull different threads. And you're like, oh, that word reminds me of this one. And if I go down that idea, then it's going to take me to this other place. And um, you kind of just have to let time help you build a story. And um, having, I'd say the perfect day allows me to do both those things, which is unblock my team so that they are rocking and rolling, and the other half is creating time to do uh, projects that are, that are on my plate and making sure I can move them off. Well, a follow-up question, what, what's your preferred tea? Uh, currently, I'm into the three cinnamon. It's I don't know what that means. I didn't, I didn't know there were three different types of cinnamon, but I really enjoy it. It's kind of like spicy and warm, and I think as the weather gets a bit colder, that's, that's my go-to. Are, are there any routines that you found that you've picked up from the Netherlands 
like living there now for a couple of years? Yeah, I think I last week I officially crossed the the threshold into like the perfect balance of like Dutch tech bro maybe is is the perfect definition for it. But I have a bicycle desk now, which is as it sounds, it's like an exercise bike with a standing desk attached to it. And I am loving it. But the last time I'd been on a bike before we moved to the Netherlands, I was 10. And I was actually worried when we got here that I wouldn't remember how to ride a bike. And now I now I have two bikes and a bike desk. And um, I, that was not something I expected to have unfold that way. Yeah, yeah, it sounds very Amsterdam. Yeah. Final question. Which one or two podcasts would you recommend? Assuming you listen to podcasts. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not, a, I'm, a, I'm definitely a reader. I don't know what it is about my brain, but I am, I, I'm happy to read transcripts to podcasts. I just, I think I just process the, the written word better than I do um, the spoken. Okay. So let me reformulate that. Which one <laughs> or two blogs would you recommend? Yeah, that's it. That's a great question. I really like First Round Capital's blog. I think it's really interesting as far as startups go. They always have an interesting perspective to share. I also just like to stay tuned for like industry reports and I often like you you find Deloitte or McKinsey or whatever will pull out a state of the business for an industry that that is that I'm working in at the time and I always find those really interesting and super educational uh, their thought process around gathering the insights and uh, communicating that back out. Um, currently I'm majorly into an article that came out by Google Think and it's about the five different roles that a CMO plays and how no one CMO can play all of those roles at once. So it's really about finding the right priorities and knowing which ones are going to be your strength and then finding finding the right support and team to help build out the rest. And I actually found it really helpful to articulate why I feel so tired all the time. And I think it's because I try and do all five, but it, it was a really great piece, um, a fairly comprehensive research behind it as well. And I really enjoyed enjoyed that. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank you. This was so fun to. It's not. It's not often you get to talk about your journey in marketing, so it's it's been um, a fun a fun trip down memory lane as well. So that brings us to the end of this episode, as well as season one. I'll be taking time over the next month to ask for your feedback and make improvements for season two. I hope you've been enjoying this show so far. Thank you so much for listening.